it actually turns out we become our environments. And and that that's for good and for bad. You know, that's in, in the context of life and the context of death. And if you are in a community of death and toxicity, guess what you're going to become? You're going to likely become a very toxic person. But if you're in a community that holds up Jesus, really believes in the Bible and is trying to practice the disciplines and trying to forgive and be graceful and merciful and practice justice, it's going to forge you. It's going to make you into a kind of person. We end up becoming our communities. It cannot be overstated. The importance of placing ourselves in an environment where we are we're challenged, we're loved, a community that Dallas Willard called the circle of sufficiency, a place where we are sufficient, we are loved, and we are nurtured. Hello and welcome to the Spiritual Formation Podcast, a place where we have conversations that lead to transformation. I'm your host, Nathan Williams, and I'm excited to share today's episode with you. Earlier this week, I had a conversation with author and theologian A.J. Swoboda. And while A.J. is a very accomplished theologian and author, um, one of the things I love most about A.J. is his pastoral heart. He spent a number of years as a pastor, pastoring in the Pacific Northwest, more specifically, Portland, Oregon. I asked AJ questions that directly related to his most recent book entitled After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. But I think it's worth mentioning here that while AJ has written just a incredible book in After Doubt, he has also written prolifically on many other subjects. In fact, in 2019, his book Subversive Sabbath actually won the 2019 Spiritual Formation uh, Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today. So AJ has a unique voice in the world of spiritual formation, and I'm really just so honored that he was willing to sit down and uh, let me ask him some questions. So um, I want to go ahead and transition into that conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. Today, I have with me theologian and author, A.J. Swoboda. Welcome, A.J. So good to be with you. Nathan, what a distinct pleasure it is to join you and your people today. Well, why don't you, A.J., just take a couple of minutes and let our listeners know a little bit about who you are, um, maybe a little bit about your current vocational assignments. Yeah, well, maybe the most thing, most important thing to say uh, first is I'm a chicken farmer. Uh, we have 12 chickens here in Eugene, Oregon, um, on a little <laughs> urban farm in uh, in, ur- in, uh, in urban uh, Eugene, Oregon, where I'm uh, the assistant, uh, sorry, associate. I just got a, 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 a step up in my faculty rank. I'm the associate professor of Bible Theology and World Christianity at Bushnell University. Uh, I run a doctor ministry program as well at Fuller Seminary. Um, I write. Uh, I have 12 chickens. I'm married to a, a beautiful woman named <laughs> Quinn, a son, Elliot, who's 11. And we have a, a very emotionally unstable dog by the name of Diggory. So that's what my, <laughs> that's what my life looks like right now. Very good. They must be important chickens considering they made the cut before the rest of your family. Listen, I mean, <laughs> listen to me, Nathan. Listen, the, the, the farm fresh eggs that I fried this morning um, 
really it was it was a, a form it was a forming experience. We're talking about <laughs> spiritual formation. A good fried egg done in the right way is revelatory. Is it not? I mean it's just a I mean I a, I honestly the door of heaven. I had a I had a couple in my, my previous church I pastored that would show up with a dozen fresh eggs from their yes. chickens. So believe me, I can yes. revel in that experience with you. It's yes. a it's a wonderful thing. I can all but be sure that those people knew Jesus because that's that, right. That's the that's a Jesus move right there. That's exactly right. I want to get into <laughs> talking more about your most recent book. Um, but before we do, could you share just a little bit um, about yourself personally? Maybe give us just a, a bit of a trajectory of what your faith journey has been like. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I guess the 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 nuts and bolts would be uh, wasn't raised in a Christian home. Sixteen years old, had a dramatic conversion to Christianity, uh, to Jesus, and then. Um, Somewhere after my undergraduate degree, I began to sense a pretty strong pull towards both uh, pastoral life as well as uh, the academic life. So I did my seminary degree, and then I eventually did my PhD in theology, was a pastor for about 20 years, doing both college ministry and then church planting in urban Portland, Oregon, and then eventually transitioned to uh, full-time teaching, where I've been at for the last four years. Although I've been teaching for a good 15 years, uh, it wasn't a full transition to academic life until about four years ago. Really, my passions, Nathan, are in the areas of uh, which really align with your podcast, Spiritual Formation. A lot of the work that I've done on a writing level has been about uh, the, the topic of formation my book, Subversive Sabbath, which is about um, uh, the discipline, the, the practice of keeping a daily right. day of delight and rest, uh, Sabbath. And then my book, After Doubt, which is about really how do you follow Jesus when you got really big questions and you're struggling with your faith. And a number yeah. of other books before that around creation care and all sorts of things. But really, I mean, it, it, thank Jesus that he brought us together. I mean, spiritual formation really is uh, a passion for for me, and even as you and I were talking offline before everything began, it, it really does seem to me that the the last the happenings of the last few years have uh, revealed to all, us all that the church is in desperate need of deepening its formation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so absolutely, I, yeah, that's that's a passion for me, as I know it is for you. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. Um, I, I'd love to just dive into uh, a little bit of After Doubt. Uh, the subtitle there yeah. is How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. And to get us started, could you just take a minute and give everyone a brief overview of what this book is about and just share sort of the heart of the message, and then I'll get into some more specific mm. questions of uh, some of the content. Yeah, well, I mean, really, you know, every book... Nobody accidentally writes a book. I mean, you, you have to be, you have to have an intention to do it and, and a purpose. And this book, of everything I've written, which this was my tenth book, no doubt, this book, um, I cried more writing than any other book I've I've written, largely as a result of the stories and faces and people that were, um, you know, went behind the writing of the this 
this book, which which deals with broadly the topics of doubt and what people would often call deconstruction. So what happens right. when we begin to ask really big questions of our faith? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, 10 years of, of serving as a college pastor and then 10 years of being a pastor in Portland and then four years as an, as an academic in higher ed. You, be, you sit in the front row long enough and you begin to find that people that walk through the doubt deconstruction experience almost, they often, every story is different, but there are some similar stories that often happen across the board. I once jokingly yeah. said that everybody that's walking through deconstruction seems to be reading the same Google Doc uh, in terms of the kinds of things that they're struggling with because it does feel <laughs> like they're similar stories. They're not all the same, but yeah. similar trajectories, similar vignettes, similar themes. And so when you sit in the front row long enough, Nathan, you can't help but begin to ask broader questions about things that are taking place in the church that maybe have led to this. Uh, I think it was Nelson Mandela who says, you know, you see enough people floating down the river, it's about time you start asking, well, what's going on upriver? Uh, yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of this book represents that, you know, what is going on upriver? And there are some, um, some things that I've observed and seen that I think have contributed to our moment in history. Um, but the, the premise of the book is, is simple enough uh, in, its, in, its, in its belief that um, asking questions uh, is actually a really important part of our Christian journey and that uh, hiding those questions and pretending like they don't exist in the end is not going to serve our long-term, sustainable, resilient faith in following Jesus. Asking questions does not mean we don't love Jesus. Right. Right. One of one of the things I loved about the book, AJ, is how balanced it is. Um, your approach to deconstruction is so helpful, in my opinion, because um, it provided both a descriptive and a prescriptive section. Um, you know, you started oh. with sort of clarifying what is deconstruction and and how a person's context is going to dramatically change how they interpret that word and as much of a hot button as it is, um, how they're going to hear that. So again, for uh, you talk about some for the progressive Christian that that word might spark a lot of excitement, right? Of yeah. let's tear down the wall, yeah. um, as, as you say. But for many others, maybe conservative Christians for the most part, um, they might hear that same exact word and it might incite fear. Uh, or uncertainty. <laughs> so um, yeah. after, you know, you begin to flesh that out descriptively, you go on to prescribe some ways that we can begin to move forward um, with this idea of deconstruction in a way that, you know, em embodies that fear and trembling, but also sees deconstruction as something we don't have to be afraid of, um, and that mm -hmm. God can actually use to uh, shape us more deeply into his image. So I wondered, could you talk a little bit about that importance of balance um, mm. when we begin to talk about this process of deconstruction? Well, you, you, your first point of that brilliant question, Nathan, hit the nail on the head, and that is that um, that's a tricky word. The word deconstruction is a really tricky word. Um, and and you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, depending on where you are and when you are, that word is going to have a very different meaning. And when I say that, I mean, you know, if I was to say, if I was to say the following phrase 10 years ago, it's going to mean something very different than it would today. So for example, if 10 years ago, I said the phrase, let's go, Brandon, that's going to mean something very different today than it would 10 years ago. 
you know, in our political environment, the phrase "Let's go, Brandon" has been co-opted as a as a political statement. Uh, yes. And you, and have to go figure out what that means uh, yourself. But that phrase means something very different 10 years ago than it does today. And, and, right. and the reality is the word deconstruction um, in in a place like Oregon probably means something very different than it does in a place like Kansas or uh, in the Bible Belt. But really what, what it is at the end of the day um, is um, it is a process by which somebody um, questions or challenges their own beliefs. I mean, that's that's ultimately what it is. And I, I would like to point out, by the way, that everybody deconstructs. Um, I had a yeah. friend who was an atheist who had a heart attack. And, and, you know, it turns out when you go through suffering, often your atheism gets deconstructed. And you start asking really big questions about God and about your future. Uh, and as he lays in the hospital bed and gives his life to Jesus, you know, he's deconstructing his unbelief. Um so everybody at some level deconstructs. For the Christian, you know, we have a word for questioning your beliefs. Um, and it could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. Yep. In a, in a good way, you ask the question of balance. Um, we have a word for question, challenging your own beliefs or changing what you believe. Uh, in the positive sense, that's called Repentance. In fact, uh, the word repentance in the New Testament, metanoia, literally means to change your mind. Uh, so the idea of questioning and challenging your own beliefs to follow Jesus uh, is on one level a positive. It also can be a very negative thing. Um, we see, for example, that Paul, in one of his writings, critiques a guy named Hymenaeus, who he calls uh, somebody who's shipwrecked his faith. He's walked away from the faith. That is a, that's called unbelief. And that's apostasy, right? That's a, a shipwrecked faith. Yes. That's not good. Deconstruction can be both good and it can be bad. What matters is what you are deconstructing. And I think that the, the key to understanding the difference uh, is found in a number of key points in the Bible, but one would be Jer- Jeremiah chapter 12 in, 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 in the Old Testament prophet, where Jeremiah is laying before God um, a, a series of critiques. Uh, so he is um, he's angry with God and he's letting God hear what he feels. Yet in the middle of uh, in the middle of his critique, he says something fascinating. So his first line uh, is he says, "You are always right, Lord. Yet I would speak to you." So he's saying two things here. He's saying number one, God, you're right, and I trust you, and I know you. I know you. I love you, and I trust you. And yeah. I've got some challenges for you. And what's going on there is that is what I would call a faithful question. He is challenging God, but he is doing it in the context of love. I trust you, God. So here's what I would say. Deconstruction is healthy if it is deconstruction done in the faith and trust in God. Deconstruction is dangerous when we are actually beginning to tr- to, to question our trust in God. So there's, there's a good sense, but there can also be a really dangerous right. sense. It's the difference between a a married couple that needs to go into counseling to work on their skills in order to love each other better. What do they do? They challenge their marriage to have a stronger marriage versus the married couple that begins to question whether they want to be married or not. That's good deconstruction. That's not good deconstruction. That's bad. So you get the the difference. So there's balance in that. A a great way to uh, illustrate this, Peter, sorry, but Peter and Judas in the New Testament, um, both of them 
uh, turn their back on Jesus. So they both have the same story. The difference between the two is Peter was willing to be forgiven. Judas walked away entirely. So, um, you know, Peter turned his back on Jesus, but he did so um, in such a way where he returned uh, the prodigal. And I think um, people, friends, can go through seasons where their faith is challenged. Um, But what makes us different is that we keep coming back to Jesus. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Peter. One of the things that I find interesting about um, Jesus's response to those who doubt, um, like if you look at if you look at Thomas, right? So um, the poor guy is known as Doubting Thomas. Um, But when he when he has doubts, Jesus invites him closer, and instead of showing him the door, and you know. Peter in the same sense he denies Jesus and uh, mm. he denies him by this charcoal fire right and then it's Jesus on the beach over a charcoal fire that's offering him fish yeah, and forgiveness yeah. and I just think for for me as I was reading your book I was so encouraged because I think you really present um, these questions and this doubt as an opportunity just like Thomas just like Peter where those big moments of doubt those big moments of failure they often can even become the setting for our, our, our restoration. Yes. The, the setting yes. for greater intimacy with Jesus. So, yes. um, no, I, yeah. I think that's Can, a can I add to that, Nathan? So please much do, so please. that when, when Peter comes back to Thomas, and you, by the way, hit the nail on the head, nowhere in the New Testament is he called Doubting Thomas. And, and he actually, he actually ends up being the first known apostle to go to India and preach right. the gospel in the nation of India. We shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas. He is absolutely uh, the, he is the sent Thomas or something else but we it's funny that we would give him as identity as though that that's that's his right uh, yeah but that, and we shouldn't do that but I just love Jesus when he shows up to Thomas the first words out of Jesus's mouth to Thomas after Thomas has doubted is Jesus says peace be with you he doesn't shame Thomas in his doubt he doesn't come back and say you how could you not believe in me? He doesn't question. He doesn't challenge. He brings peace. And I, I think in, in a way, yeah, by the way, are there times that we need to do what you and I would call church discipline and get up in each other's grills and call each other on our sin? In the words of my grandma, you bet your sweet bippy we need to. <laughs> but, but Jesus models in his life by saying, peace be with you. He models what the Apostle Jude is going to tell us when he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Uh, And and that's Jude 22. Uh, We are commanded to practice towards the doubter what Jesus does uh, to Thomas. (laughs) You know what Jesus says, if your brother sins and doesn't listen, treat him like you would a tax collector. And we often think that that means that Jesus is saying, like, get rid of them. It doesn't work that way. How does Jesus treat tax collectors? And by the way, who's writing that? Matthew, a tax collector. Um, Jesus was extremely hospitable to even tax collectors. So I think he's saying, be kind to them. Be nice. Be generous. The greatest way to push people who are questioning away is to shame people for their doubt. Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus does not shame people in their doubt. He meets them in their doubt. And he finds a way uh, to use that doubt as a way to draw people to himself. Could not agree more. Poor Thomas, he's given this bad rap. and 2,000 years, he'd been called Doubting Thomas. I know, yep. and every single one of us have been there, right? We've all had questions that, that we've needed Jesus to speak to. So yep. um, 
You, you asked this really important question, AJ, early on in the book, um, in talking about the extreme approaches that can be taken to deconstruction. I want to quote you here. You say, what's one to do? Conservative Christianity critiques the new questions. Progressive Christianity scoffs at old answers. One demonizes doubt. The other demands it. The goal, of course, isn't to run away from deconstruction, nor to run toward it. The goal is Jesus Christ and nothing less. And, you know, I think independent of where each of us finds ourselves on that spectrum, it seems to me that we absolutely must begin to find a new path uh, forward that avoids Mm. the extremes of either ignoring doubt altogether or pouring gasoline on it. Um, So so one question that I'd, I'd like to get you to speak to is how important is it for deconstruction to happen in the context of community versus in isolation? Oh my gosh. So I was, uh, I remember this was, this was, um, this was a sobering moment for me uh, during, um, during COVID when we were all locked down. I, um, I had, somebody had sent to me a video of, um, so, so as you as you know, and, and your listeners likely know, there is right now there is a there is a a genocide taking place in China right now. The Uyghur Muslims are mm. being literally they are being um, uh, taken to concentration camps um, and reprogrammed, and if, in many cases just killed, and they never show up again. Yeah. And it's a human rights crisis. It's an absolute travesty, and it's happening on our watch. A genocide is taking place right now. Um, Somebody had sent to me a video of a drone that had captured video of Uyghur Muslims being put on these trains. I mean, it was reminiscent of watching, you know, whole Jewish families being put on trains, you know, to be taken to Auschwitz. I mean, it's just horrific to watch these stories. So what, you know, we've learned that what happens in these these re-education camps uh, is that uh, these Muslims are being taken to these these distant uh, re-education camps, and they do two things. Number one, they separate you from the people that you know, so they sever relational ties, which is the only way you can reprogram somebody. You have to cut them off from their 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 communities. And then secondly, they just have them watch videos nine days nine days. Nine week, nine hours a day. So they separate them, and they have them watch screens for nine hours a day. Somebody sent this to me. I'm sitting there and watching, it and it, it sort of, I had an epiphany. That that is literally what we did during COVID. Mm. Yeah, is we 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 were separated, and I'm not I'm not blaming. And I, the the we needed to shut down for a while. It needed to happen, but we were separated from the people that we love, our churches, our families, and we spent the entire time watching TikTok and and YouTube. And we wonder why we've all come back, and so many people have walked away from their faith. We we wonder why. So many people have decided, I'm just not coming back to church. And honestly, I'm done with Jesus. I'm going to trade it in for some political religion or something else. It actually turns out we become our environments. Yeah. And, and that, that's for good and for bad. You know, that's, that, that's, that's for, for, for in, in the context of life and the context of death. And if you are in a community 
of death and toxicity, guess what you're going to become? You're going to likely become a very toxic person. But if you're in a community that holds up Jesus, really believes in the Bible and is trying to practice the disciplines and trying to forgive and be graceful and merciful and practice justice, it's going to forge you. It's going to make you into a kind of person. We end up becoming our communities. Um, and so, the, I mean, I, 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 this literally it cannot be overstated, the importance of placing ourselves in an environment where, where we are we're challenged, we're loved, uh, a community that Dallas Willard called the circle of sufficiency, a place mm, where yes. we are sufficient, we are loved, we are embraced, we're challenged, and we are nurtured in loving Jesus. It's that image in the Gospels when the, the disciples, when the people are carrying the man to Jesus. There was no way to get him in because the room was so full. So they go up on the roof and they lower him to Jesus. And the Lutherans always preach on this, that Jesus, when he looks up, he doesn't see the paralytic man's faith. He sees the faith of the people who carried him. And he heals the man and forgives his sins. We've got to begin to reapproach the communal dynamics of faith. Absolutely. Um, and and I, listen, I'm all for individual faith. But us evangelical-ish, charismatic kind of folks, we've o- we have overly individualized faith and forgotten the communal dynamics of faith. And the result is killing us. By the way, Catholics, Catholics, they're not struggling to get people back to church. You know why? Because if you're a Catholic, you have to take communion. It's a non-negotiable. And I'm not a Catholic, but the Catholics have figured something out. And that is you cannot follow God by yourself. You have to be in the room. You must be present. Uh, my, I have a family member who uh, is a recovering alcoholic who told me during uh, COVID that uh, for like one week, AA tried to do Zoom COVID calls, Zoom calls, but she said it didn't work because there's one thing that's missing when you do a Zoom call. What's the one thing that an alcoholic needs in order to stay clean? Smell. It's the only way you can tell if somebody's being serious or not is smell. Mm-hmm. Here, I, I'm going to put it this way. The, the New Testament talks about the aroma of Christ. If it doesn't smell, it's not the church. There needs to be a smell. Got to be in the room. And again, I'm not for people that cannot go to church because they're immunocompromised. Or I'm not getting into that. You, there's grace and there's mercy. There's accommodation. Right. Yeah. But we have we have got to be in the room to love Jesus together. There's something that happens when we are no longer in the room. And I, I go to toe to toe with people that are are all go, going bonkers on the whole online church thing. I, I get why it's tempting, but we have to fight those temptations. I really believe we do. I appreciate you you speaking to that with such um, passion and clarity. You know, I, I think it's something for us to really, really take hold of. There's a distinction that you meet, make um, between deconstruction that I just think was was such a foundational part of, of this book. And you talk about the distinction between deconstructing faith in God versus deconstructing certain beliefs about yes. God. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and help our listeners begin to understand why making that distinction is yeah. so important? Yeah, yeah. So we, <clears throat> I've been married for 20 years this summer. And <clears throat> I am, uh, as we speak, I'm, I'm in the midst of going through some intensive, personally, 
intensive uh, uh, therapy. Um, I'm dealing with family of origin stuff that I just never dealt with. And it's really hard. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's taking me down to the studs and, and I honestly, every session I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Cause it is just soul, soul crushing to go back and deal with that family origin stuff. And in the, in, in along the way, I, I've had to really come to terms with the kind of husband I've been, what it's been like to be, be, be married to me. And, you know, it, it, I've been a great husband in many regards, but I've also been a hard person to be loved be married to you know i think a good marriage nathan a good marriage is a marriage where we are constantly learning more about our spouse and actually along the way there are times in which we figure out things we thought we knew about our spouse we're actually wrong the whole time that we thought oh i thought you like really loved it when i got you um uh, when i got you that kind of ice cream to find out 19 years later that actually she's been just putting up with it because she she wanted uh, me to be happy. And the reality is, it takes a lifetime to get to learn somebody. And that's a line from Madeline Lengel. She, she's, she, she's talking about marriage. And she says, you know, it takes a lifetime to get to know somebody. It takes a lifetime to learn somebody. Um, it's so interesting in the Gospels that even as Jesus hangs on the cross, the disciples don't understand him. Uh, they think he's calling out to Elijah. Uh, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they think he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Eli, Eli, what do you say? And the, the gospel writers intentionally put that in there because they'd spent three years with Jesus. And the point is, you can spend three years with Jesus and still be wrong about Jesus. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, they think they say to him, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still think Jesus is bringing a military coup. They have spent three years with Jesus. They've experienced the crucifixion. They've experienced the resurrection. They've experienced the, the <laughs> Pentecost. Yeah. You, can, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, experience the resurrection, seen the cross, spend three years with Jesus, and still be wrong. The sign, I would argue the sign that you are actually following Jesus is that you are constantly learning ways that you have been wrong. And that actually, if you're never wrong, it's not God you're loving, it's your thoughts about God that you're loving. The sign that you're loving God is that your ideas are constantly being broken to follow God rather than breaking God to follow your ideas. And a lot of Christians don't like that because they think like, oh, I've arrived, I've got all the right ideas in place. And I just think, gosh, what a privilege that must be. Uh, to have fully arrived uh, into yeah. your uh, into that sanctified intellect that you, that you experience. For the rest of us morons that are trying to follow Jesus, it's like a reboot every ten minutes. You know, it's like, oh goodness gracious, I have got a lot of learning to do. You know, the last book that Saint Augustine wrote was a book called Retractations, which a lot of the early church writers their their last book that they ever wrote was basically them ripping themselves to shreds and saying this is all the stuff i've been wrong about and that's how you would end your theological career is you would end by saying i have been so wrong about all this stuff but here's the stuff i've been right about and i think that's the model of jesus is that you it is it is a journey of constantly discovering how absolutely naive you've been until we see jesus face to face and at that point uh, we will see him as he is, and he will know us as we are known. Uh, but until then, it's a journey of failure, brokenness, and false starts. Um, that's the sign that you're loving Jesus. That quote um, that 
that you just mentioned, and I knew it, you use that in the book about how it takes a lifetime to to learn someone, to, to learn someone and you you say after that, and how much more God? And Goodness gracious! I think if you're t- you're talking about belief formation, um, with us being particularly concerned with and focused on spiritual formation for this podcast, I'd like to dig into that some just a little bit more. It seems to me like it's critical for us to live in and embrace the tension there that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, you remind your readers um, at one point that even the demons have accurate or orthodox theology. On the other hand, as a theologian, you know, you told us at the beginning, you spend most of your day helping students think rightly about God and challenging thoughts on on who God is. So how can we hold those intention in a way where we value (laughs) the necessary process of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, without at the same time diminishing or even disavowing orthodox historical Christianity. Oh, man, alive. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm a teacher, so right? Um, So my... (laughs) It's really hard to be a teacher when you're constantly figuring out you've been wrong. You know, it's hard. I remember a couple years, this was was maybe 10 years ago, um, I'm actually writing this. It's in a uh, in a book I, I'm 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 working on right now. Uh, I was giving a lecture at a seminary. I, I used to teach at George Fox Evangelical Seminary, which is now Portland Seminary. I was giving a, a lecture on Martin Luther and <clears throat> Dr. Larry Shelton, who was is a world-renowned Wesleyan scholar, a church historian, brilliant character. Said, "Hey, I want to come hear your lecture." And I was like, oh my, "I'd love to. What a gift! I have Larry Shelton come listen to my lecture." And he's sitting in my lecture, and and I give this lecture. It's awesome. Everybody's loving it. And he says, hey, that was really great. Would you come back to my office for a moment? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's Larry Shelton. Of course I want to go sit in your office. (laughs) And he he looks at me so sweet. He goes, that was such a great lecture. And it was mostly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I was like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, you totally botched his early life, the, uh, the 95 theses, you botched some stuff in there. And I was so humbled. And it raises a problem. Like, what am I supposed to do? Call the last five years of classes and tell them I've been wrong and, and that they should go rethink their theology of Martin Luther? You know, the reality is any of us, any of us that do the work of ministry or work or, uh, or caring for people or simply loving our family is we're simultaneously learning and growing ourselves and leading others. That's an yes. ongoing challenge. And, and, and to do that without shame. Because the reality is, Jesus does not shame us for those moments we've been wrong. He gently corrects us the way a good father does, but he doesn't beat us up. God, God can handle, here's, here's what I think. God can handle our mistakes, but he will not put up with our pride. Hmm. And and the point is like he can take our junk. I mean that's what do you, do you know <clears throat> Do you know what compost is? I mean that compost <laughs> is literally taking a bunch of poop and just turning it over and over and over again and then growing stuff with it. That. Right. that that is the kingdom of God. Is God takes our junk and he just he makes great stuff out of it. He grows vegetables with it. God can handle our mistakes. He will not put up with our pride. Pride is not an option. We are called to hold forth what Scripture says about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, with our entire hearts. 
and simultaneously be open to the Holy Spirit sanctifying work to teaching us over time. So simultaneously, preaching what Scripture has to say as best as we can at the moment, and simultaneously being open to the Holy Spirit to say, Holy Spirit, where I am wrong, you know my innermost thoughts. Where I am wrong, would you speak truthfully to me? What does Jesus say? The Spirit will lead you into all truth. This is a promise. Jesus says the Spirit will lead us into truth. So it's a great time to be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, because we get to preach the good news and uh, we get to uh, be open to the Holy Spirit. You know, who, look at look at Acts chapter 2, by the way. Who is the first person to stand up and preach the gospel? It's the guy who just a couple chapters earlier had denied Jesus. It's Peter. Uh, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a line in Robert Ferrari Capon's book, uh, where he's, in his book on preaching, uh, Foolishness of Preaching, uh, where he says, or Foolishness of the Gospel or something like that. He says, uh, he says, <clears throat> if, if a sinner cannot preach the gospel, who is left? And the idea is, uh, that's all God's got to use, is broken people. Uh, and so he loves working with us. And he makes a lot of, a lot of compost out of it. Such good insight. I, I'd like to I'd like to end uh, with getting you to expound on one of my favorite quotes from from your book, and uh, okay. it's a it's a little it's not long, but it's 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 hearty. Um, yeah. So you, you say this: you say we are basically now at a point where there are churches for those who rejoice with those who rejoice contemporary conservative evangelical Christianity and others, other churches for people who weep with those who weep contemporary progressive mainline Christianity. But this sidesteps God's ultimate desires. What we don't need is one church for people who are rejoicing and another church for people who are weeping. Our souls need a space where people can weep and celebrate together. Could you just expound a little bit more about that? And as the church, how we can embody yeah. both of Paul's charges from Romans 12 to, to yep. not just choose one or the other. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I, I could get myself in trouble here, but I might as well just go for it because you're letting me, you're letting me get into it. Um, we are told in John chapter 1 that when Jesus came, uh, he brought grace and truth. Moses brought the law, Jesus brought grace and truth. The way John sets his gospel up, he says the theological statement, through Christ is grace and truth. And then he gives us an illustration. Why? Because John's a good preacher. And he tells the story of the woman caught in adultery. And when Jesus talks to the woman caught in adultery, after all the people have left, he says to her, is there anybody here to condemn you? She says, no. And he says, neither do I. And then he says, go and sin no more. And in that very moment, he gives grace. He gives truth. He says, I forgive you. Stop it. (laughs) Essentially. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. So here's what I think has basically happened in our in our modern world. The big sort, which is the, the world basically breaking in terms of political divisions, uh, partisan divisions, tribal divisions, ideological divisions, racial divisions. This big sort has led to a church context where basically conservative Christians ha- have nailed the truth side uh, and progressive Christians have nailed the grace side. Uh, and that uh, uh, conservatives know, man, we got we know we know the Bible and we know it really well. Be honest. If I want to hear about the Bible and I want to hear, um, I want to hear about Jesus, I'm not going to the mainline church down the street. I'm I'm going to go uh, to the church that that actually believes the Bible to be the true uh, witness to Jesus. Okay, 
That's true. I'm 100% in my experience. And I got to tell you too, if I'm grieving and I just lost somebody, often the last place I'd want to go is the conservative evangelical church mm, because it's right. all truth and no grace. There is, uh, it is like everything is great, happy, clappy. There is no place to mourn. There is no place to, to get into the darkness. If I want to get into the darkness, the Episcopal church down the street is probably the best place to do it because they permit the big questions. They ask difficult things and they allow you to grieve. There's a lot of grace. And I think that we've gotten to the place where we've taken the way of Jesus, grace and truth, that was in one person, one body, Jesus. And we have created a church environment where half the churches do grace and half the churches do truth. And the minute we do that, we're dividing the body of Christ into two things. And eventually they start going against each other. What we need is we need churches that simultaneously are places where the gospel and the Bible and the way and the witness of Jesus is offered in unfettered, clear, convicted ways. And simultaneously, you can grieve here and ask your questions and you will be loved. So the problem is um, we've, we've created church environments that separate those two things out. And it's created an almost untenable situation. And to illustrate this, by the way, um, of all the people that I grew up with in college ministry, um, most, many of them are no longer Christians. And the ones that are, now that are in their 40s, more often than not are a part of fairly progressive mainline churches. And I would argue because those are safer places to ask difficult questions. I'm not saying those progressive churches are right. I'm saying they have become environments to ask those difficult things. If we, if we want to have witnesses, if we want to have a church that serves people for their entire lifetime, then they must simultaneously be safe places for grace and truth at the same time. There you go. Yeah, so good. And I think, I think part of it comes down to just uh, being resolved enough in our own faith to not allow insecurities of what those questions will do to mm -hmm. maybe the people around us or even the people in uh, in the pews, so to speak, for leaders of what's yes. that going to do to the people that, you know, if they start asking those questions, isn't that going to lead to a domino effect of just realizing mm -hmm. like the Holy Spirit can handle that and we yes. just have to help yes. steward people well so yes. that it is safe, it is truth, it is grace, and I... Yeah, thank you so much, AJ. Well, Nathan, I, I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, to the leader, the pastor who is listening to this, if they cannot ask those questions in our churches, they will ask them on TikTok. And I will tell you, the better place to ask it is in our community rather than on the internet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, AJ, I really do just want to thank you for taking the time. Um, I know that you have a lot going on, and this conversation is one that I've enjoyed deeply. So uh, oh. appreciate your thoughtfulness, appreciate what you've contributed in this book here. And I just want to encourage every person listening, if you haven't already, go pick up a copy of AJ's latest book, After Doubt, um, available wherever you can buy books. Thank you so much, AJ. <laughs> Nathan, it's been a joy to, and you're a great interviewer. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Formation Podcast, where we have conversations that lead to transformation. For more information about the show or share it with others, please visit rss.com slash podcast slash SFP for a direct link. If you found today's episode helpful, please consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening through. 
Thank you.